We start today's show, though, with the very latest when it comes to mixing and matching vaccine in this country. Nasty says people who were given a first dose of AstraZeneca should be allowed to take a second dose of an mRNA vaccine. That opens the door for those individuals to receive Pfizer or Moderna shots in order to get fully vaccinated. In short, the interchangeability of vaccines means that you can receive one vaccine product for your first dose and safely receive a different vaccine for your second dose to complete your two-dose vaccine series for optimal protection from COVID-19. NASI's latest recommendation also says mRNA vaccines are interchangeable if the same product is not available for a second dose. However, it adds there's no current data on the mixing of those types of shots. Jamie Marocker, Global News. Let's bring in Dr. Horacio Bach, adjunct professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at UBC. Dr. Bach, thanks for coming back on the program. Thank you, Jill, for the invitation. What is your response to what you just heard as far as the updated NACI recommendation? Um, well, I think it's very welcome because we know from two studies performed in UK and later on in Spain about 10 days to three weeks ago, and they did the study, basically, they vaccinated with AstraZeneca and then they vaccinated with uh, Pfizer and vice versa. That is for the UK study, while the Spanish uh, study came only AstraZeneca, first dose and second dose uh, uh, Pfizer. So what they found, basically, that uh, there is an immune response and there is a, the, the, you, you can prime your body to produce antibodies and uh, protecting antibodies and the, there is no problem so they check even with the uh, you know at the level of production of the immune response with cells and they found that it's it's, it's fine the difference uh, or the only problem is that we were talking about 400 500 uh people but i i think it's it's okay to use i just want to mention to the audience that no matter uh, what use the vaccine, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, or uh, Moderna, if the same protein information is in case of messenger RNA that you provide to the cells to, to make. There is no difference in the spike protein, what we call, that is expressed on the surface of the virus, if you're talking about AstraZeneca, Moderna, or Pfizer. The only difference is the delivery system. So two of them, Pfizer and Moderna, they use messenger RNA, and AstraZeneca is using a kind of a harmless virus in order to prime our immune system. So there's no difference in regarding the, the, the protein we are using to make antibodies. So it doesn't look that will be a problem, and that is great because, you know, we have to continue to be vaccinated. One of the the preliminary results when you're talking about the mixing, though, is some, I think this came out of the University of Oxford last month, uh, that found mixing the Pfizer, BioNTech and AstraZeneca could result in more mild or moderate side effects. So nothing that's going to send you to the hospital. There were no hospitalizations or any other safety concerns. But if people are worried about side effects, there's that possible increase in mild to moderate side effects. Yeah, that yeah, that that's true. What what they uh, exactly compare? You know, if you uh, if you have the two dose two doses using the same vaccine or mixing and matching, and basically it's it's the normal reaction of the body when you will get the second dose. More than likely, you will feel like a kind of fatigue, 
little fever, but they should resolve in one or two or three days because that's a regular um, response of the immune system. It's like a, our body is getting the information we are under attack. Let's use all our uh, weapons in order to, to, to kill the, the intruder. So that's the reason we feel that. But again, as you mentioned, there is no severe cases that require to go to the hospital or, you know, the, the, the worst that people die, basically. Uh, and it appears too, looking at what's happening in several European countries, they are already uh, going ahead and offering the mRNA vaccine as a second dose uh, to people who got AstraZeneca. So does that give us a bit more confidence uh, that that is an okay move and the and that it is safe to act to go ahead and do that? That is correct. Remember that the Pfizer and Moderna are those that they gave the, the, the less severe cases compared to AstraZeneca that we have this rare. Uh, 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 um, clothing and didn't happen with Pfizer. So as you use the second dose as Pfizer, not vice versa, I mean second dose AstraZeneca, it should be completely okay. Definitely there are people that will feel a little uh, uh, with more like, a, I, I cannot say severe, I would say mild symptoms, but again, those symptoms are normal when you get vaccinated for the second time. So I don't see any issue. And yeah, it's very welcome that other uh, places like I think France and uh, other countries in, in the European uh, Union, they are using different, uh, I mean, the same we are proposing here. So definitely giving more confidence and it looks okay based on the result presented by UK and Spain. So do you think then if people are given the choice and specifically people who got AstraZeneca as their first dose, does it matter then what they get for the second dose as far as the main goal being protected against this virus? Does it matter what you get as your second shot? Uh, Yes, exactly. I think the reason they, they offer the Moderna or Pfizer because we don't have enough for the second shot of AstraZeneca. That's my impression. And using Moderna or Pfizer is equally the the same decision because they are both messenger RNA related and they code for the same protein of the virus, so it should be okay. Um, But still, it's it's something that uh, um, we we, we can go ahead because we have to, to vaccinate more people. And you see the results today, you know, the level of infection is very, very low, what we are reporting from the last weekend here in, in, in BC. All right, Dr. Bach, we'll leave it there. Thanks again so much for coming back on the program. Appreciate your time. Thank you and you have a great evening. Well, you've probably heard of Stewart, B.C. If you've not been there, it is very close to the border with the United States, uh, close to Alaska. And just across the border in Hyder, Alaska, there was an event called Jab Fest 2021. And joining me to talk more about that is Caroline Stewart, the board of directors member with the Hyder Community Association. Caroline, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, So what exactly was Jab Fest 2021? Possibly one of the most exhilarating things I've ever been a part of in my life. Uh, But it actually started April 29th when Governor Dunleavy, along with Senator Stedman and Dr. Ann Zink, who was our chief medical officer, realized we had an abundance of vaccinations and Canada didn't. And so they came over here back on April 29th to vaccinate some 19 Canadians and one American. And it was obvious we needed more. And so on uh, the 26th, Wednesday, uh, public health nurses flew in and we set up a clinic 
and vaccinated 162 people, 161 Canadians and one token Alaskan. <laughs> so, and how did that work then with the border? How were people able to access it? It was ticklish. Um, the Canadian medical people could not uh, assist. So we set up an uh, online appointment uh, system and you know, just got the word out. If you want a vaccination, come on over. It was a little, little ticklish uh, to get them the appointment booked, but we, we got it done. Uh, of course, now the Canadians couldn't come over and get back without a 14-day quarantine if it weren't for the amazing uh, Dr. Flory from Stewart excuse me, Forey, uh, and he is with Northern Health, and he gave them permission slips that it is essential for your name here to have a COVID-19 shot in Hyder, Alaska. So that was how it was done. People would come over to Hyder. Most of these were second-dose vaccinations. A few Pfizer's, mostly Moderna. Um, they came over with their cards. They got this permission slip, the questionnaire. <clears throat> they were directed to our campground. Uh, they lined up. We had a retired doctor who basically did triage, um, asking about vaccinations. Would they need to do a 15-minute wait or a 30-minute wait? They were then directed to one of um, three or four stations we had set up for the vaccinations where a medical assistant would assist with the, um, the questionnaire and, and the cards. Vaccinators stabbed them, jabbed them. Uh, mostly they used round needles. A few opted for square needles. I'm kidding on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, we were able to, in uh, a matter of, of a day's time, got this done. And have you heard of this happening anywhere else? And that I know the people in Point Roberts were very interested in seeing how this all played out and the permission slips and wondering, well, if it can be done there, why can't this be done in Point Roberts as far as permission slips? But have you heard of this happening anywhere else? No, I haven't. And um, I'm hoping this radio program of yours will get the word out that uh, it should be done, it can be done, and by golly, let's get it done. So how many people then, you mentioned 162 people, 161 Canadians, did that use up the supply or is there still supply if there were, say, more Canadians? I know there's not a, a ton of, of population, but if there were more Canadians that wanted to come across the border to get their vaccine? Yes, there is more. Uh, Alaska is actually pretty flush with vaccine. Um, there, as it, there were 300 that could have come over. I think there was a bit of confusion what with the online appointment, and there was a bit of a lineup at the border getting back. I think some people got to the border and said, eh, not going to chance it, and turned around. We were actually expecting about 300-plus. Um, but, yeah, they had plenty. And to their credit, they only wasted four dose of the uh, Pfizer. We used up – we didn't have any unused doses. They went home with full vials that were still viable. That's uh, that's amazing. As for Hyder, I know in in one of the notes that you sent to to the people at Point Roberts, you talked about the fact that to get to Hyder, you have to go through Canada, or you have to go through that border. What's that been like during the pandemic? Painful. (laughs) It's been, um, the isolation has been really difficult. Um, Yes, I could go to Ketchikan. It's $1,000 for a round-trip ticket to Ketchikan to go other places. Ketchikan is an island, so I would have to fly or ferry off of it. Um, otherwise, it's just it's through Stewart. Um, we're very limited as to what we can do, essentials only. 
Um, I equate it to I can go buy bread, I can go buy wine, but I can't go receive communion. Hmm. And it sounds like isolating, but uh, at least there is that kind of um, leeway, which is more, I'm, I'm sure you've heard from the people in Point Roberts, which is really more or, or that than they've been given or what they've been asking for throughout all of this. And we are so appreciative and so thankful for it. Uh, otherwise, we have nothing here. Um, we have no grocery store. We have no gas station. Um, we don't even have a school. Our kids go to school in Stewart. We would be in dire straits if our neighbors did not allow us in. And it's the kind of goal of this vaccination as well, inviting Canadians over to get everybody. I would imagine this is going to speed it up and it's going to get to, to that percentage, get to that higher percentage quicker than if this wasn't happening. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we, we pray happens. Um, Just one second. Sure. Jim, I'm on the phone. Um, sorry about that. That's okay. Yeah, that, that's our hope and our prayer. It was like a family reunion on Wednesday. I got to see people I haven't seen in over a year, and we were all excited. I mean, <laughs> excuse me, who gets excited about getting a shot, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but it was exciting. Um, they pretty much stayed in their vehicles. I'm not going to lie. Um, I stuck my hand through a window and held a hand of a, of a nervous friend um, because that's what we do. We're, we're family. We hold each other's hand when we're scared, and we help each other out when we can, and we got to. Well, it's uh, pretty amazing uh, to hear about how this all went down and unfolded and uh, the fact that there could be more of this happening. Uh, really uh, inspirational hearing this. We'll have to leave it there for today. But Caroline, thanks for joining us and thanks for talking about this with us. You are very, very welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, a big announcement earlier today. It is about a start date for Playland. Yes, you heard that right. A start date for Playland, but it's not going to look like Playland has in the past. There are going to be several safety protocols in place. And joining me to talk more about that is Laura Balance, a spokesperson for Playland and the PNE. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, we wanted to talk about this just as the information is getting out there, because I know a lot of people have been waiting and wondering what things are going to look like. So what are they going to look like? Well, I think what you'll see is um, a very robust COVID protocol plan that features everything from hand sanitizers at the entrance and the exits from all the rides, uh, mandatory masks program to distancing and to a significantly reduced capacity in the park. So we're, we're asking people, we will be opening the evening of June 11th. So we'll run June 11th, 12th, 13th for our opening weekend. And that will be for people in the lower mainland and Fraser Valley in order to comply with the current orders. And then June 15th, we're hoping to be able to welcome people uh, from the expanded health region if, in fact, that is the date that the order uh, transitions to that wider group of people. So, um, you know, I think that there's been a lot of anticipation. Certainly there has been uh, within our team, and uh, we're excited to be able to open safely and to provide some great family entertainment uh, in an outdoor um, atmosphere and, and in a fresh air 
situation. So we ask anybody, if you're interested in coming to Playland and you do live in the Lower Mainland in the Fraser Valley, if you could uh, visit our website, all of our tickets are purchased online and uh, you can review all the safety protocols at uh, ca. And how will that be enforced or will it be enforced as far as making sure people visiting starting on June 11th are from the Lower Mainland and the Fraser Valley? Yeah, so we've got a team of people that um, are within our ticketing system. And so if you are not from within the Lower Mainland or the Fraser Valley, you'll be asked to book at a time when the order is expanded to allow uh, a larger demographic um, footprint for the attraction. And so like all retail businesses, we're all working very hard. And I think, you know, I think it's really important that we acknowledge the great work that uh, I think was done by a lot of people in this province to really buckle down in May. People may remember that uh, Playland was slated to open May the 1st. We were very excited about that. We had operated in 2020 very successfully um, with this reduced footprint and with a number of protocols in place. And our staff were really uh, looking forward to getting uh, getting in uh, the work, especially our expanded youth team, or youth staff members who really depend on Playland. And we were asked by the Provincial Health Office to respect the circuit breaker, uh, which we did do. And so now we're excited to get going now as we, I think, as a province, start to move towards a reopening. And that's really what we're seeing um, in all areas. And so that's why we've decided to wait until June 11th uh, for our opening weekend. And then we will ramp up appropriately as the orders uh, change. So if somebody right now is listening to this and hoping that the restart plan goes with the earliest dates that are available and it does expand as we go forward, could they book now for a later date as far as booking tickets for, say, later on in June? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I believe they can do that. Um you know, we will be having a capacity each day that the park is open. And so we are encouraging people to book early. So if you want to book your tickets and then, you know, I think certainly as a playland, I think every British Columbian is committed to ensuring that our COVID numbers stay trending the way they are. Um, but regardless, uh, you know, the Playland's always been an organization that considers itself a leader and we will do what health officials recommend. So if people do book tickets later in the summer, I'm, you know, our team would be in touch if that order were to change. But I think we're all so help- hopeful and everybody is fingers crossed that, that this is, truly is the start of the reopening of British Columbia. And looking at some of the safety protocols that are in place, because on the restart plan, July 1st is the date that if it goes as planned, that's the day that masks become recommended rather than required. Uh, I guess that is more for the indoor uh, venues and such. But what do you anticipate or what will people expect as far as protocols in place when they arrive, if they say arrive starting you so the people right out of the gate that are there on the 11th? Well, um, we will ask people to refer to our website. We will have the latest protocols in place there. I think, you know, the p and Playland are 111 years old this year. So we have a long and strong history of working with the health authority, in this case, Vancouver Coastal Health. We have a daily working relationship with that organization, and we will do 
uh, and and implement any recommendations they have. So I think what whatever the order is on the day you will arrive, you will see it reflected in our park. And if there's changes to that order, um, w- the changes will be made in advance of your arrival on our website. So I think with all organizations, everybody is doing the best they can and, and developing protocols that are fluid and flexible to in order to ensure that everything that is being recommended by the experts are being implemented. And so whether it's us at Playland or organizations across this province, people are really relying on their health authorities to give them the latest info. And, uh, you know, I think we in, in British Columbia are very, very well served by these health authorities. And, uh, you know, we are just so grateful every day of that strong working relationship. And so just to clarify as well, when we're talking about Playland, so it's going to be opening Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays starting June 11th and then the plan to expand it more into the summer. Uh, is it going to look the same as when we talk about Playland, when we talk about the fair at the PNE, all of the, the attractions and the events, are those things that people can look forward to? Well, we're currently working on a plan right now uh, that is scalable for the annual fair. We acknowledge right up front that the fair in 2021 will not look the same as past fairs, certainly 2019 and previous. Uh, we're looking at some models and we're well working with the health authorities to see what might be possible. We are very hopeful that we will be able to stage an in-person uh, fair in some form and bring those most beloved favorite aspects of the fair to British Columbians. I will say the PNE has been the place where British Columbians have come together after adversity. I think for myself and so many of my colleagues uh, at the PNE, we really, really want to be that place again this year. We think it's a traditional role that we've held and we really want to embrace that and offer that to British Columbians. But we'll have to see where the order is. It's so hard to say, even on, you know, when you say that we'll be going to more days in the summer, we actually have said we're going to start June 11th. We're asking that it be, um, you know, directly within our region as as per the order. We will expand that as the order expands and we'll keep updating people. And I think, um, you know, the public is is understanding that businesses are doing the very, very best they can and that it's about checking the website to make sure that everything is current. And if you have bought tickets, we will obviously stay in touch with you because we have all your your ticketing information. I should point out that we're only selling tickets online to Playland, and that's very important. Traditionally, a lot of times people would expect to just arrive at the gate. We're asking um, that people don't do that because we will have capacities which are much, much less than a regular Playland day in the past. The good news is for the people that do come this year, you're going to be able to ride your favorite rides uh, probably many more times because the park will be have a fraction of the attendance that you normally would see at a playland on a summer day. <laughs> that is, a, that is a, a, a good silver lining uh, way of looking at that, uh, for sure. Uh, Laura, just before I let you go, does this change anything as far as last time when we talked, uh, we were talking about very dire financial, uh, the situation of the finances and that, that P, the P&E, the fair needed $8 million, and uh, although it would qualify for some of the grant money, not nearly that much. Does this change that? 
I think that uh, when we when we put out the call for eight million, we, uh, we you know we had been working with the health authorities. We were expecting a reopening for Playland, and we took that into account. So we are trying to be very responsible. We know that government has uh, tough choices to make, and uh, that there's many worthy organizations. So um, all this though this will help, it will provide some very much needed employment for our staff. It will provide. Um, some financial infusion into our region because we are a significant economic generator for for our neighborhood and our community. So that's very important, but it will not change our need uh, for a one-time grant. And so I thank you for, for asking me that question because we are, um, we are at the point where we are being very um, transparent about the need for this one-time grant and uh, we wish it was not the case but it is and like many organizations we're doing everything we can and we're fighting hard and we appreciate people's support and if they choose to support us by buying a ticket to Playland or a PE prize home ticket uh, we're very grateful for that. Uh, you mentioned staff do you know how many staff you'll be able to hire back and are there people ready to jump back and be ready for June 11th? Yes, so the PE and Playland are low barrier employers, so uh, ha- we have a very wide range. So we have some wonderful skilled trades, uh, Red Seal trades that are part of our team, but also we have a lot of, uh, you know, first time employees. We have a lot of people that may be challenged from finding employment uh, until they have the opportunity to gain some employment and that, that double edged sword or, or, you know, convoluted situation that many young people find themselves in. Um, and so we'll be talking about hundreds of employees as opposed to thousands, but it'll be important jobs and very meaningful to the people that uh, we are able to bring back. And so everything we can do every um, every day that we can open is, is important employment, not only for the organization as a whole, but uh, those many, many young people as the largest employer of youth in this province. We take that, that role and responsibility incredibly seriously. All right. I know a lot of people uh, will be looking forward to that again, set to reopen June 11th. Laura Balance, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for being with us. So we were talking earlier about a pretty cool campaign or an event that took place. Uh, this was at a border crossing. My guess is a lot of people listening have never been to the one between Hyder, Alaska and Stewart, B.C. And a bunch of residents of Stewart were crossing the border. They got an exemption letter from their doctor and were able to go there to get vaccinated and then made their way back and did not have to quarantine. A uh, very creative way to use some of the excess vaccine that they have in Alaska. Well, there are other calls as well to come up with at least a game plan when it comes to reopening the Canada-U.S. border. And joining me to talk more about that is Bridget Anderson, the CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Thanks so much for being with us. Nice to be here, Jill. I know you've put this out on your website as far as having a plan, a plan that's based on evidence, based with what we know as far as numbers and such. What would you like to see? Well, just like we saw in BC with our restart plan, the reopening plan, we want to see a plan that the federal government works collaboratively with the provinces to lay out some clear guidelines about what is going to happen. We've got the expert panel that made their recommendations just recently. And so together with the the 
uh, travel and tourism roundtable, we've said it's time for us to see a plan. And the plan would allow for families to be reunited, for vaccinated travelers to support local jobs here through tourism, and for business travel to begin again. I mean, one thing that we know through this pandemic is uncertainty is very, very challenging for, for businesses and for individuals. So providing a plan and some clear markers would give some clarity so that planning can begin and we could get back to some sense of normality. It does seem, and I can't be the only one, I'm getting daily email from airlines, from hotels, uh, talking about booking travel, talking about, uh, in, and not in the, the very far away future, but in the, in, the, in the near future, saying they want people to get back to it. But you're right, if you don't have the plan from your government, you don't know what's going to be happening with quarantine, that kind of thing, it's pretty difficult. Well, in the expert panel, I mean, there were two very notable British Columbians on this panel, Dr. Mel Cradgen, who's the medical director of the BC CDC, and the CEO of the digital technology supercluster, Supesh. And they've laid out some very clear guidelines that is driven by science and data, which is exactly what the BC reopening plan does as well. So we're saying that it is time to follow the, the data, to follow the science, and to lay out what will happen over the coming weeks and months so that all of us can, can really follow understand that and there can be some clarity going forward. How Did they mention or talk about what could be in place as far as rapid testing, as far as things that could perhaps take the place of quarantine or ensure that when we do start opening things up more and maybe relaxing some of those rules that it's also keeping the safety there that it's not going to bring this virus back or spread the virus more? Yeah, the expert panel was very clear on this, and I think that is what is uh, in flux over the next coming weeks and months. So what uh, the expert panel has recommended, and which we're very much supporting, is eliminating the government hotel quarantine for all travellers, but eliminating some of those pre-departure tests and those for and the quarantine for fully vaccinated, and then recognizing that there are a lot of other people who maybe have one dose or are choosing not to get vaccinated. So having different measures in place for those people, and and you know there's been a lot of conversation about a uh, uh, vaccine passport, if you will, and so we're saying that there is probably going to have to be some sort of digital health certificate will be required for for travel, and, and we support that as well. I mean, what we're trying to do is get back to um, where we saw tourism in 2019. If we know in British Columbia, the tourism industry generated over $22 billion in revenue and employed 150,000 people in tourism-related businesses. Tourism is going is the last sector to really recover. And so what can we do to add more clarity and certainty so that planning can begin? And, and you know, we're talking about recreational travel, but also business travel and conferences and things that are really important to our economy overall. Uh, it was interesting, I thought, too, when you talk about the recommendations from this panel, the difference between it, because it wasn't saying you had to be fully vaccinated to get back on this to travel. It was, uh, as you mentioned, different levels of if you've only had one dose, here's the testing that should be in place. And it did seem like they really had gone through every scenario. They, they, I mean, it's an expert panel and it's called such for, for good reason. And I think there is a lot of thinking that has gone into this and recognizing that over the summer especially, um, some of us have a first dose, some of us are waiting for a second, some people are choosing not to get vaccinated so quickly or maybe at all, and so recognizing that it is going to be a very diverse kind of uh, society for some time is how do we then allow restrictions to ease and to get back to some level of normalcy when, when we know that things are changing and changing quite quickly.
Uh, you mentioned the quarantine hotel as well, which is one of the recommendations and certainly one that's getting a lot of attention. The panel saying there's really nothing to show that's necessary or that's doing anything to cut down on uh, the, the spread of this virus. Uh, I know the federal government said they were looking at this. How confident are you that uh, at least could be one of the recommendations that is adopted? Well, again, you know, the science has to guide this decision. We know that the hotel quarantine has been highly criticized um, for a number of reasons. Uh, a, lo- a lot of people thinking it doesn't work. Some people have skirted the hotels. And it's been very costly as well for a number of travelers. So are there other measures that can be put in place that keep the health and safety of Canadians and travelers uh, top of mind? And so quarantining would still be recommended, according to the expert panel, for some travelers, but doesn't need to be in a hotel situation. And I think these are the kinds of things that we're urging the federal government to work with the provinces to come up with a plan and to really uh, to be clear about what those recommendations are and to set out some markers, not unlike what the B.C. government has done for our reopening plan that really allows for confidence to build and planning so that we can get back to uh, a summer and a fall and a winter that we all want. Uh, The panel also had some pretty interesting graphics or in their recommendations when it looked at positive cases all uh, connected with travel and non-exempt travel, uh, whether it be by air or by car. And the number of cases, I mean, for uh, air travel, I think it was 1.5% of of the cases. It was 0.3% in vehicle traffic. Uh, Do you think there's there's enough information out there as to what the danger is? It seems like travel is getting getting blamed, I suppose, for more of the transmission than what it actually is. And I saw those um, those figures as well. And I think one thing that we probably all would agree on in the pandemic is that the data is changing. And so looking at that and really understanding what the impact is, is really important. And understanding that there are also concerns about what kind of measures are in place for those travelers who maybe have come from hotspots across the globe to keep them safe and to keep ourselves safe as well. So really finding that balance. And again, you know, the expert panel has laid this out and they are experts. I'm certainly not an expert in vaccines or, or in uh, pandemics, so really relying upon their wisdom. And they've been very clear about that. Uh, do you think people would be okay then as far as getting back to travel if, if we tell people, okay, we're going to open this up again, we're going to get rid of the quarantining, but uh, due to the, the modeling and what this has shown, that pre-departure and arrival testing is a good way of stopping the virus from being imported, from stopping the virus from traveling around, that people would buy into that and that could be part of a reopening plan? Well, I think part of what we have been um, saying for throughout the whole pandemic is really understanding the levers around health and safety and confidence and how the two are so interconnected. And rapid testing, whether it's PCR or antigen, is really one piece of that puzzle. So, And very clear communication, again, going back to how BC's reopening plan and other provinces' reopening plans as well have made it very clear what those markers are. So when you add in the factor of testing, that gives another layer of confidence and also gives gives more information, which I think is both pieces are really important. And so whether it's a PCR testing or, again, the antigen testing, which we are seeing more roll out across the country, not yet in British Columbia, but it does give businesses and individuals just that other layer of information, which is so important. What do you do next then? You're with the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. What does the board do? Does it wait for movement from the federal government on this or what's next for your organization? 
Well, we're working really closely with uh, Canadian Travel and Tourism Roundtable, and we were on calls just yesterday talking about this, and we will uh, continue to talk about it. And, you know, we have been, whether it's the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade or whether it's the Roundtable or other uh, business associations, working um, collaboratively on behalf of our members to really work with the government uh, to let them uh, to understand the impacts of decisions and also to help guide decisions as they make it. So we'll continue in that role and really do uh, encourage the government to continue communicating with us. Uh, you know, we're at the ground level. We're hearing from those businesses and those uh, our members that are seeing the impacts of this and then trying to find a path forward uh, in, in collaboration. All right. We'll leave it there. Bridget Anderson, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thanks so much, Jill. 10%, 15 20 a lot of questions when it comes to tipping, and that can often lead to disagreements or at least a difference of opinions. Now we know BC's minimum wage is at $15.20, one of the highest in Canada. Will that have an impact on tipping etiquette and tipping habits? Well, our show contributor, John Jang, is taking a look at that today. Good afternoon, Jill. Now that BC's minimum wage is currently $15.20, that makes it one of the highest in the entire country. So it's opened up another round of conversation into the practice of tipping. To help explain what the right policies should be, Margaret Page is joining us now. She's a business and etiquette coach online at margaretpage.com. Appreciate you giving us some time here today. Delighted to spend some time with you and solve some problems for people. Love it. And that takes us right into this, I guess, somewhat controversial topic of tipping. Now that we've seen that BC's minimum wage has gone up as of Monday this week, uh, it is among the highest in Canada now. And I think that's opened a jar of discussions here, mostly related to tipping. Because the minimum wage, as we know, uh, for those that might be working in the restaurant industry, the food and beverage industry, uh, it will benefit them to an extent. But then it does ask the question, you know, should people still be tipping when you go and uh, dine out or go even try to do takeout orders right now? What do you think is the right policy to approach with tipping? I think it should remain the same as before. Sort of the standard is 15%. If you've had a really good meal, 15%, of course, that's in the restaurant. If it's the outstanding somewhat more. And, uh, you know, if you've got home delivery, usually about 10%. But I don't think minimum wage ought to change the, I think it'd be very confusing for consumers to have to figure that out then, how much the product went up over the time and then adjust their tipping. I think that's just too much work. Margaret, what are your thoughts when you go to a business and when you go to pay with your debit card, um, the machine, when it prompts you for a tip, it starts at 15%, and then the medium option is 18%, and then the high-end option is 20%. Is that appropriate, or should people have real issues with that sort of practice? Well, it, it can create some real discomfort for some people, and there's pe- some people that in a particular business that ought not to be tipped and then others that are so you can easily bypass the tipping when required to do so for instance if you're buying hair shampoo or something and you're at the at your favorite salon buying hair shampoo you ought not to be tipping on hair shampoo and so you ought to be able to quickly bypass that and feel comfortable to do so there's there should be no guilt no feeling of angst gosh i didn't tip 
those kind of products, they're not um, items that, that typically we tip on. So it's services that we tip on only. And uh, if you feel it wasn't worthy of 15%, don't tip 15%. My own philosophy is if I have to eat on cardboard or receive something that's not dishes or something, then I'm prepared to pay 10%, but not 15%. That's fair. And what do you think of certain businesses or industries that should be getting more tips than what they get on average? Because I know right now the tourism industry, for example, has been struggling. We do have our fingers crossed that it's going to be making a dramatic comeback in the next few months. And hopefully by the end of summer, we'll see things at least get back to a level of normal. But people might not realize that when you go on a tour, uh, the tour guide can be given a gratuity, and maybe not enough people realize that fact. Yes, I think uh, that's absolutely true. But 5 or $10 to a tour guide is totally acceptable and appreciated by them, particularly in these times that we've had um, over the last 18 months, for sure. And and finally, just my last point here, what about those that just have adamantly decided, I'm never going to tip? Now, it seems like it's a very small portion of people, but those people are very driven to carry this particular policy with them, I guess, until the very end. They just feel like, hey, if you want to be working in a job where uh, tipping is sort of your main source of income, maybe you should consider getting a different job. And I only bring that up. Because in the CKNW buzz line, one of our callers, one of our listeners this morning made up that point exactly. So clearly there are still some people that think tipping is not only unnecessary, but I'm not going to follow it even 1%. That's true. Uh, And because different cultures around the world, many cultures do not tip. The U.S. happens to be sort of the number one in tipping around the world. I think Canada is number two in that general vicinity, but many other cultures do not. On the other hand, do not assume if you've had bad service and I don't give a tip that management will know and understand they need to make adjustments because that does not translate because we do have people from other cultures and Canadians that simply made that decision not to tip. So if you've had bad service, and don't think you're sending a message by not tipping. Instead, the right course of action, let the manager know, let the business owner know about your dissatisfaction so they can make an adjustment. But uh, don't uh, use no tipping as a signal of bad service. Perfect. She is Margaret Page, a business and etiquette coach you can find online at margaretpage.com. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. All right. And our show contributor, John Jang, is here now as well. It's always something. There's always a big difference of opinion. (laughs) I didn't realize we'd had that adamant caller to the buzz line. Yeah, that's right. Some people are just downright not with tipping. Zero percent. And I guess I can understand, like, if their reason is you should find a better job, I think that's unfair. But if their reason is, well, society has told us that it's okay to tip these portion of people, but not those portions of people, okay, that's a reasonable argument I can hear out. But if you're just thinking that people can easily move on to other jobs, that's obviously uh, not as easy as some people like to believe. Uh, It also doesn't bring in the fact, too, that there are some restaurants and in some scenarios where servers tip out on the amount that they sell. And so if they get stiffed by a table, that money has Mm -hmm. to come from somewhere because they're sharing it. They're sharing it with the back of the house and it's shared amongst all the employees. 
That's right. I was uh, at working at a restaurant for about three years. Most people, I've, I would assume, have worked in a restaurant. So it's true. I think when we sold, uh, I want to say $1,200 minimum, we would have to tip out 3.5% of our total tips or something like that. Sorry, 3.5% of our total profits. And then that gets shared into the pool. Um, so when you don't get a great tip, it not only hurts just that specific server, it hurts the kitchen, it hurts the drivers, it hurts the hostesses, the hosts, everyone involved. But most people don't think about that. When you're ready to finish settling your bill, you only really think about the elements that impacted you. How was the service? Did I get enough uh, attention from the people that were serving me? Was the food okay? Was it cold? All of those things. I guess maybe not enough people have worked in a restaurant. Yeah, maybe that is it. But I did like her point where don't just not tip and think that you've done your job in voicing your complaints. If you have a legitimate complaint, then I think managers want to hear that or servers want to hear that if something was actually wrong. Don't just leave in a huff, leave without tipping and expect that's going to convey the message. Yeah, 100%. And I would also add it goes the other way. If you have uh, a really remarkably good service, yeah, of course, you want to tip them generously, but also let the manager know. Like, it can go a long way when you just make it known that this person was exceptional. They deserve a little bit more attention. It, of course, makes them feel good. It feels like they've done a great job at the end of the day. But uh, who knows? Maybe you're adding just another uh, level of happiness to someone's day. <laughs> there you go. All right, John, thanks so much. You got it. Thanks, Joe.